Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. I'm Jason Sachs. I'm Amir Malik Borf. And we are moving away from our conversations about Jack Kirby comics, at least for a little bit, to talk about one of my all-time favorite books, Omega the Unknown, number one from March 1976. This is I've read this comic so many times over the years, but this is your first time. What was this your first a- impression of it? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. This is actually my second time. Okay. I, I have impressions. Uh, I, before I started to talk about my impressions, uh, do you know how many times you think you would have read this? Like you said many times, what do you think? Like if you do some quick, you know, back of the envelope math. Over the years, over my entire lifetime? Yeah. Might be 25 times. Oh, wow. That's And it's entirety, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a this whole issue and then the entire eight or 10 issue run, depending on how you define it. Yeah, I've read them all many, many times and like literally dreamed about them and thought about them and uh, tried to find some deeper truth in them. Uh, uh, like we'll talk about in a little bit, like in some ways, this is like the ultimate dream for a kid to come across a comic like this that has a 12 year old boy who's very smart, feeling ostracized from the rest of the world, uh, feeling a little confused about his state in the world, and he discovers he has this connection with this otherworldly being who's a perfected version of himself. There's something really powerful about that mm-hmm. as a childhood dream or aspiration. It's a little like the Shazam Captain Marvel thing where you know Billy Batson is able to say a magic word and become this alpha male. This comic yeah. is really similar to that. We'll see when we get into future issues, though. Uh, the journey he has to take in order to become heroic is terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It follows a real Joseph Campbell sort of model, mm-hmm. which Gerber, I don't think, anticipated at all. Mm. So this comic re- was released two days before Christmas, December 23rd, 1975. Uh, it was the same month as, uh, so Gerber was very prolific in that time period. He was writing two monthly books and two bi-monthly books. Uh, he had just launched Howard the Duck. Howard the Duck number two came out that same month. He was also writing Defenders, writing the Headman saga in Defenders, which was is honestly my other all-time favorite comic run. Uh, he was also writing the Guardians of the Galaxy in uh, Marvel Presence. I like to call it Marvel Presence instead of Marvel Presents. So he was a busy man. He'd just come off a run on Man-Thing. Man-Thing had just ended at that point. There's one last Man-Thing story that comes as part of an Iron Man annual. Uh, But Gerber was highly, highly prolific in this time period. And uh, so he was kind of just channeling, my theory is he was channeling a lot of stuff from just kind of inside his own head onto the comics page. And Mm -hmm. we see that a lot of that here. But I'm revealing all my cards up front. I want to hear what you thought of this. Yeah, so um, I really enjoyed it as an adult. I haven't read it as a kid. So I, I'll give you some orig- some thoughts that I wrote down a little bit. So I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Time Bandits. Yeah. I saw that as a kid, probably. Um, yeah, maybe a little bit. Yeah, maybe around the same age as you probably read this book. And Time Bandits it really evoked the feeling of time bandits because it's really like a coming of age for a child. 
Mm-hmm. And the coming of age part isn't like, oh, I'm falling in love. And coming of age is like, oh my God, like I'm not, I have to take care of myself at some point in my life. And so the idea in the time bandits, anybody has seen, not seen that movie, highly recommended is this kid is just thrust into like this adventure with these these little people uh, and they go through time and like they meet different things, but he's always in danger. There's always some dangerous thing happening and his parents, you know, end up actually dying and like just some crazy stuff. And so I remember when I watched that movie and I think it's a different, I think this book would be, you know, stepping back and depending upon the childhood background that you may, one may have had, Mm -hmm. this could be different things to different people. Mm-hmm. This could be a terrifying conflict. And, and to me, Time Bandits, I loved it. It was an adventure, but it was a terrifying movie because it was the feeling was like, oh my God, like, here we go again. <laughs> Something bad is going to happen again and there's going to be no hope. Uh, and that movie ends with, I mean, so obviously this is only issue one, but I think what, hap- what, what was interesting to me, so it, got, it evoked those types of things. It was exciting. It's exciting to, to watching it. To reading a thriller and as an adult who's actually come to terms with things and is happy with my life and hopeful I love this book I don't know how I would have felt when I was a kid I would have still enjoyed it I think I would have really liked it but I, it would have terrified me so I think that's, that's one note that I put here but as an adult I really enjoyed it I think the other thing that I kind of was thinking about like Omega the Unknown um you know, the word omega, it's like the extreme final part of something. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I'd like to, maybe we can talk about it as we kind of go through the book, but it's kind of interesting. Some of the notes that I've written down as we go through like the pages and stuff. Um, yeah, so that's my I, overall he, feeling. He has the omega headband and his costume has the omega design on his chest, but he's never in the 10 issues, he's never actually called omega. Mm-hmm. He, he's never actually given a name throughout the book I, and I, yeah. I think there's something really significant about that too I feel like that's not even his name it's that's not, not I don't think it is yet. yeah yeah I, I, so Omega Unknown is a situation it's mm-hmm. the unknown and I feel like it's the end of childhood the end of innocence so I'm going to get into like the morbid parts Maybe well no because I, I think you're on something there because I, I was thinking really along parallel lines and I don't want to cut you off because you're making a great point, which is like, they are the omega of the this dying race and the alpha of this race potentially being resurrected. Is, yeah. that, is that part of what you were going to get to also? Well, yeah, I think it's along the lines of it's the idea of, but the end age of end of innocence is actually like not a happy thing. And I want to no. go to the page where it says, you know, I think it's in- encouraging or and I actually have some questions to you about the way the book is set up. But, but I think to answer your question, the way I'm thinking of this is the, the end of innocence is um, the inevitability. The page, it says like, I love this quote where it says an organism ceases to live when it ceases to grow, which is like, oh, this is great for childhood and stuff. And then the element of change, which looms so terrifying, was in fact the only hope of salvation. Yeah. To resist, to damn the flow, to, re- to go rigid was to abandon all hope. That's scary, right? 
and that yeah. now in the end, no recourse is left but to scream. So that's the end. That's not happy. That's going from a childhood that's like, oh my God, like life is so great. Everyone's taking care of me to like, oh my God, like there are evil people out there. There are people who have tried to hurt me or have hurt me. And the only way is to get through it, just get through it. And then there's hope, hopefully at the other end. So it's a scary comic book. So this is terrifying. It's not, it's not looking back. It's not bad. It's great. It's just terrifying. That's part of what I love about Gerber is that he's he's not looking at childhood through a nostalgic lens. He's looking at it through a realistic lens. And it's kind of startling because so much of fiction is about looking at people's child, people looking back at their childhoods and kind of making themselves into her- heroes or uh, seeing their life as you know, triumphing over struggle. But there's pain and horrors in childhood. And, Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we all have our traumas that we never get past. Yeah. And he's really talking here about, yeah, the no matter what you have to keep fighting through, no matter what you have to keep struggling and trying to grow and change. In, I fact, in fact, that progress through the pain is what makes life sal- worthy of salvation. And how old were you when you read this book first? So if it came out... Uh, December 23rd, 1975. I was nine years old. I have to say, that's a very sophisticated nine-year-old, not unlike James Michael when they make commentary towards him, because to really get that all that poignancy and even the feeling, maybe not even like the 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 the, the content, but the, the feelings that you got, it's very sophisticated feelings for a nine-year-old, just from a mature standpoint. Well, this is this is me kind of going back and rereading it over and over again too. You know, I, I don't I'm not sure I got any of the implication. I mean, I definitely didn't because I was as innocent as could be. But like, you know, I, the the sentiment, the feeling of it, just was so overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And this is yeah. why you know the golden age is when you're 12. I discovered Gerber at this early age, and mm-hmm. just the mood of these books had such an effect on me. Uh, there's a motif on page, and we'll go through the issue in more detail in, in a bit. Uh, there's the motif after the car crash, James Michael has is like lying in a, is in a field. The world is spinning around him and he has people running at him uh, looking like devils, right? They look like bizarre creatures. And they're just yeah. trying to save him from the effects of the crashed car, but he's going through literal hell, right? The last panel on that page he has a look of terrifying fear on his face. Mm-hmm. So the previous month in Defenders, I think it's thirty, either 31 or 32, uh, Gerber has a similar scene with Kyle Richmond, who's Nighthawk, who goes through a very, very similar thing where he's the child and he has these frightening faces coming at him and he's caught in this vertigo kind of thing. Uh, in that case, he has Nighthawk with the, the, the child's face on the hero's body, which was equally terrifying. So Gerber was really playing with these ideas at the time and was really kind of caught up in the idea of, of the traumas that we go through mm-hmm. when we were yeah. kids. Yeah, I think just to clarify, I meant the feel the, the, the feelings that you have. It's the feeling that stays with you, right? Yeah, and yeah, sorry. So uh, yeah, I mean that, sorry, the, the feeling I had was, yeah, this dislocation, this confusion. Uh, kind of place in the world mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know uh this kind of feeling in between too 
Yeah, I think it's um, yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, I think it's really cool to, to hear that, and it's also I, I I didn't like. So can we go through the issue? I had some questions about of it. Of course. So one of the things is this: I have a trade paperback that I bought, and on pages uh, two and three and throughout, the uh, the captions are in different colors. Yeah, that's it's that way in the original comic. And so my curiosity is like, are there different people talking? I didn't notice that in the writing. I tried to go back and look and see because you know it seems like the captions go from one to the other. You know, it's not really different. But I'm also curious about who's thinking, who's saying these things. Because at some points it might be Gerber. Some points I'm thinking I'm just gonna call him Omega the Unknown. And sometimes it's James Michael. I wonder, I wonder if that's the case. Did, did you ever get that? Yeah, it's a really good point because there's points when it's clear that we're seeing the world through James Michael's eyes and other points where it's clear that uh, we're seeing a kind of an omniscient narrator. I'm wondering if just random or they, they're on purpose, the colors are different. I, I think it's more or less random, but I think you're on a good point there too. Does it read more interesting to you if this is James Michael narrating what he's seeing versus it being an omniscient narrator? I mean, I think there are points that it is Gerber talking. You could tell it's the author. Um, the reason I say like it might be different with James Michael is because later on when he's playing chess with himself mm -hmm. and Amber comes in and it's that woman that he has a crush on. I call it a crush. He, he's He's fascinated by her. Yeah, he, um, he's fascinated by her for sure. Um, and basically he's playing chess by himself and she's like, you know, I don't do that anymore because it's kind of confusing trying to keep up with myself. And then he's all like, well, it's easier for me to think that I'm two people mm -hmm. or something like to that extent, which is like, I'm assuming like he's both Omega. And again, I'm going to call him Omega the Unknown. He's both Omega the Unknown and he's James Michael. It's and he's easier got when perfect. you feel like two people all the time anyway, right? Yeah. Sorry, keep going. You were saying something. I was going to say, I think it's not a coincidence that he's got two names when people refer to him. Mm -hmm. I forget, what's his last name? Starling, James Michael Starling. Okay. Yeah. Two standard names of two, like, nothing out of the ordinary yeah, two James biblical Michael. names. And then Starling, of course, you can do, you can interpret in any way, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so that first page, it says, it starts out. Um, I wonder, so did Jim Mooney design the characters and design all the, like, Omega, the unknown? And I think it was designed in-house. The character design was in-house in that I think the, the boots are Dave Cockrum boots for sure. And the design, I think, came from John Romita Sr. Mm, but uh, I think Gerber and Mooney had some stake in the design. There's, there's a few things going on there, too, that I think are interesting. One is that he echoes Superman's colors. He's got the primary red and blue. I had the same notes. I'm going to tell where is Yes. We're going to talk about, yeah. Okay, go on with that. No, no, no. I, I, want, to, I want to hear it. So please say it. Because I, I don't think it's by accident that he's wearing two primary yeah. hero colors. It's, and it's Superman, basically. But 
cool. yeah, he's kind of super because he doesn't have doesn't have well he he's jumps, you'll see that later on. But he he doesn't have flight powers. He also shoots beams through his hands. So he's not quite Superman, but he also rockets on a rocket ship to come to Earth. So there's clearly a Superman parallel there. And there's an element to this whole series that is like a satire of Superman, or more specifically, and this is something I can go on as we talk about this series more. This is a satire of the idea of Superman's heroism, this pure heroism, because Omega sorry first of all superman is pure good right he's the kansas farm boy Mm -hmm. who's you know out to to just do whatever he can to save the the people on the planet uh the hero i i can't call him omega the hero is very selfish Mm -hmm. as we'll see in later issues and is very uh non-heroic one of the apocrypha issues he uh doesn't even capture a criminal and that's really powerful to me in that he's he's a non-traditional hero. So he's he's dressed as Superman, but he represents a non-traditional hero. He's the idea of a Superman dressed up in 90s, or excuse me, in 70s clothes, kind of transformed into a more modern take on what it means to be a hero. And then that way, he's a very Gerber-esque hero. Mm-hmm. So... I'm not sure. I'm a little bit weirded out because it feels like you read my mind. But (laughs) no, no, no. But I have some stuff that's like along the lines exactly what you were mentioning. So I wrote down specifically page eight to nine. If you go to page eight and nine, imagine this Clark leaving Krypton not as a baby. So when you're a baby, mm-hmm. other people take care of you. The parents, if you're a child at a certain age, maybe up until 10, 12 years old, they put him in a bo- you know, in a spaceship, they clean up, they give him everything, they leave. He's just grown up and he's responsible for his own life, his own actions. And actually, if you look at the, I noticed that, you know, the, you know those aliens attacked Krypton and a lot of uh, Superman a mythos uh krypton was attacked by uh brainiac so almost like these aliens are attacking and he has to leave because the the planet is in peril if he stays he's gonna die in superman's case he didn't leave himself his parents let him so he has an excuse of not being selfish to your point <laughs> you know the hero here is like i'm getting out of here i'm saving my own but i'll come back later so he's and then the same thing, like stepping back to your what you mentioned is that like he's a selfish kind of hero. Well, that's what kids are. Yeah. Kids are actually unsophisticated. Oh, no, they're not so sorry. That's not that's a different note. Kids are selfish. I mean, they're not mm-hmm. good or bad. When you're a baby, you you're you're a clean slate for, and then as you're a child, kids do they're good. They don't assume things are bad around them. But then, you know, you'll see a kid go grab an ice cream and eat it without ever asking anybody what, whose ice cream it is. Or right. like they're, when you're crying, like when you when something isn't going your way, you're crying. So oftentimes it's that idea of like growing from a child, you know, going through that childhood to adulthood through the process of change. And so I saw a lot of parallels. It's like Superman left. So that's basically, it's like, and now he becomes an active participant, or the hero becomes an active participant in his own escape. Whereas in Superman, you know, he's a baby, like 
couldn't do anything. So yeah, so it's definitely a parallel between Superman and and I'm gonna call him Omega the unknown superhero. I don't know. Okay, you can call him Omega. Uh, Omega. Yeah, on top of that, uh, this comic's drawn by Jim Mooney, who drew Supergirl comics for years. He's you know he's basically the primary Silver Age artist for the Supergirl comic strips or uh, backup stories, and here he is drawing Omega the Unknown, uh, writing and or drawing and inking it too. So he is clearly like this is a passion project for him too. Um, this gets into the, I want to step on, on all your notes, but this gets into another thing that I think is really amazing about this book that struck me just as I was rereading it again, is all the dualities here. Everything is in, is in contrast with another thing. There's obviously the hero and James Michael, but there's also the Superman versus the hero thing. There's James Michael and his parents who are uh, in, in conflict with each other, literally. There's uh, Ruth and Amber, who are different personalities. And we'll see that play out over the series too. They're kind of his, his uh, kind of parental figures, but they're in, in a contrast with each other. Also Ruth and the doctor, who the doctor is very controlled and the Ruth is very kind of, kind of afraid of herself in a way. There's really little interesting, subtle pieces about Ruth's lack of self-confidence in this issue. Uh, and um, so there's there's that duality. Uh, there's even the the bit that you called out with James Michael in the chess game, and then him and being fascinated by Amber because Amber's so open, James Michael is so closed. So everything is like in tension with something else. Everything is in tension with an opposite in some way. Nothing is ever a simple thing. Mm-hmm. And so that makes it even in a metal level. This is in is in conflict with traditional superheroes in that nothing is ever on the surface. Everything is at least one level deeper, if not even deeper still than that. And so that's part of also what I find so fascinating about this book is that nothing is ever, oh, everything is what it seems to be on the surface, but never is never everything is as, as simple as it seems on the surface, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. We've been talking for a little bit. We haven't even got to the point where like his mom's, he's talking to his mom, the robot head that after three panels melts in front of his face. (laughs) That was creepy and scary. That's the moment that stuck in my head forever. There's two moments in this book that, that have never, that have never uh, like escaped my head. One is the scene of his mom's face melting. Mm -hmm. And the other, for some reason, is uh, when James Michael's in the hospital and he says, uh, oh, good, I won't have to go to school after, after all. Yeah. And, and uh, Ruth says, thank God at last a normal reaction. That was funny. I wrote that down today, a joke by Steve Gerber. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's just spooky as hell. It's, yeah, it's, um, one thing about it, so this was a bi-monthly book. Do you yeah. think, the reason behind it is because Mooney was doing everything and also they didn't really expect sales or what do you think? It they was? didn't expect sales because most books started as bi-monthly at that point. Oh, they okay. moved them up to monthly when the sales permitted it. But this was always a bi-monthly. It was one of the lower selling books they ever published, in fact. Mm. Yeah, it's a, um, that was, int- I actually noted that joke part two when she said, thank God it lasts a normal reaction. I wrote that down as well. It really eases the tension. Can I 
ask you about the parents. So I'm mm -hmm. curious about your thoughts around it. I mean, maybe it'll come up later on. One of the things that's given me a little bit of a dread feeling is like he didn't get to finish the book. And it's like, I need my resolution and I need it from Gerber. And so that, that's, I'm just kind of, we'll, maybe if we keep on reading it, we can talk about that. But, yeah, we'll take it, let's take it issue by issue. Yeah, yeah. But in this one, can we, like, what was the, um, honestly, like with the parents, um, not really like knowing, not really, the question wouldn't really be like, what do you think they are? But like, the fact of the matter is that you don't see the dad die. So where's the dad? Mm -hmm. And the mom being a robot, it makes me feel uneasy that like, again, that's the dread part as a child, like thinking about it as a child, is like, oh my God, like even the people that I've loved, almost the two people that I've loved in my life, they're not there. Like and my mom wasn't even real. Not, it's not even a real person. And I didn't see, A, it's like, that's really dreadful and scary. And I didn't see, I didn't feel like James Michael had any emotional feelings towards that and this he was scared like he he reacted in like a oh my god a dread fashion like monsters around me which obviously i would feel like they're monsters around me too because my mom is a robot but i didn't feel like oh my god like my mom just died just melted in front of me or where's my dad like he just died even though he had a lot of reverence for them earlier and says hey you guys teach me all i need to know you know that kind of a thing what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, and Ruth and Dr. Barrow talk about that, right? Mm -hmm. How cold James Michael feels, seems to be about his parents. And they, they find that to be kind of confusing about him too. He seems almost like estranged from it. You know, he wakes up and there's no tears in his eyes. He's looking forward in that kind of very bland look on his face. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know what, I've never known what to think about that because I, it implies something larger, right? Uh, it, I've never known, is he a robot? Is he some sort of other being, right? There's a, the talk about the hero being this perfected version of his society, uh, from his society, the finely tuned organism. Uh, it's almost implied that he himself is a, a robot of some sort, although I don't, there's reasons to think that's not actually true, which we'll find out in issue 10. Uh, and he also feels pain. I think we're meant to feel like James Michael is some, somewhat robotic. I don't want to reveal anything from later on, but there's, yeah. he, is, he is able to feel and he's able to be estranged from thing. I, I don't know, what, how do you interpret his reaction? I mean, I think there's... I think it could be a teenager because teenagers always say they hate their parents. I'm not saying he hates his parents, but he's like, he's kind of, again, that you, I think you go from like a happy child, selfish being to like a unhappy, selfish being. And I think maybe that's the teenagehood or teenager mode. I can't really explain it. I mean, I can always step back and just say like, well, that's just a comic book. It's just, that's how it is. He's human. He's just a comic book. The other thing that I also mentioned is that like um, on page six and seven, you see that when he gets thrown out of the car and you clearly see page six panel one, he's thrown out of the car. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have shoes on. Mm -hmm. That could mean a lot of things. It could mean like 
don't like maybe like angels or when you die you don't have shoes on uh, that might be one thing or maybe he's dead and maybe he's in purgatory or something i mean i don't that's just a far-fetched thing but I've it was never... just kind of interesting as to like why would that happen like why is he like where are the shoes and socks like was he not wearing shoes and socks in the car and you know just have a lot of questions like what happens to the dad um well, Dr. You know, Barrow says the doctor, uh, the, the dad died, but they didn't find any blood in the vehicle. Yeah, well, because they're robots, but I mean, like, you don't even see the robot head of dad. You don't see anything. It's like, it's almost yeah. like he doesn't even matter. Like, um, well, that's, that's one of the questions, right? Do his parents matter in James Michael's context? Are they tools in some way that get him to be the person he's supposed to become, but there's is there no emotion there yeah. um, they make eye contact with him so from that standpoint he's connected to them but when they enter the his in the first scene he's he's he screams and then next panel they're coming into his hotel room are they in separate hotel rooms or motel rooms it's a motel and if so, why are they in separate motel rooms? What does that say about the relationship in the family and mm. the way they treat James Michael? I didn't even notice that. Yeah. I didn't even think of that. I thought it was just his bedroom. I missed no, they're, they're at the motel in the mountains there. Yeah, because I thought they're just living in the mountains. And then I did see it. I just see a motel now. That's interesting. Yeah. So there's something, there's something there. There's something in this strange relationship he has with the parents. And the way the parents are lecturing him, they're all about the intellect. Mm -hmm. Until the mom figure, call her the mom figure, says, you know, I envy you this, this adventure. But the way they talk is very kind of bookish. Mm -hmm. He's a homeschooled kid. Okay. So they're maybe more intellectual or whatever. But they speak in such like clear, complete sentences. Mm -hmm. And then something that jumped out at me this time is that Dr. Barrow also speaks extremely perfectly in this comic. Mm. He's like, he speaks like a character from a 1940s movie. He's got a pipe too. Yeah. Uh, you know, he he's very kind of very very conventional heroic mm -hmm. like something out of a tv drama from the 1970s and ruth and everything around him feels a lot more loose a lot more kind of free in their emotions in some way mm. like there's this another one of the the, the dichotomies here mm -hmm. and i wonder if dr barrow in some way echoes the parents and then this also kind of leads to this question about how much of this book is like seen through James Michael's eyes. So we can go on about this forever. This is why it's good. We're going to do multi-parts on this because is the stiltedness of the doctor's conversation coming from James Michael's memories and interpretation of what he said, or is it a more objective portrayal of the way he communicates? Mm -hmm. There's scenes with him and Ruth that are outside of James Michael's vision but there's very few of them. Yeah, when they're walking in the park and he has that, that sweater that's super weird. Yeah. 
I think it's a what a fantasy to move in with two very attractive women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that one of the really attractive ones likes to play chess. I mean, <laughs> it's all it's all the fantasy here. Could well, be. yeah, and Amber like looks so free, right? That she's wearing her halter top, and you, you got know. you got Betty and Veronica. They are like a Betty and Veronica at Beth- first glance. Yeah, uh, Betty's kind of messed up though. Betty's confused. Betty talks about her own problems. She needs her money. She wants the responsibility. Lately, she's had trouble relating. Mm-hmm. Oh, is that Ruth or? That's um, Ruth, excuse me. Yeah, I was calling her our Betty, I guess. <laughs> oh, right, right. Yeah, um, that's funny. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I like the, it's exciting. I mean, I'd want to live like that. I, I don't want to go into a foster home and live in a hospital, living with two, like, it's kind of out of the ordinary <laughs> that a doctor would say like, hey, you guys, can you take her in? We'll pay you. We don't have $500 for him to stay here, but we'll give you the money to have him move in with you. Yeah, uh, I don't want to ruin anything, but wait till you see where he lives. All right, I can't wait. It's going to be, we're going to have a lot to talk about next week with that. Mm-hmm. All right. Awesome. I know you had more notes. Oh, so on page 15, I think I have it. Um, um, I have two notes. Uh, one on 15 when uh the robot comes i call it a robot i don't really know what it is but sure yeah um he has it says he just kind of the idea like james michael is has a feeling is feeling the same things that omega is feeling the Mm -hmm. loathing for the robot and it, it does really appear that he is omega hero he is that hero um and then the last thing i wanted to mention is uh you know, there's a quote where he's he's not accustomed to pain, but it interests him. Right. Like when right. his hand burn and he does the little fire thing. It's almost disembodied, right? I mean, I don't want to get too, I, I don't want to go on another tangent, but in some ways, James Michael seems like he's on the autism scale. Mm-hmm. He's so internal. He's so kind of, estranged from his own feelings mm-hmm. that he's he there's something that I, I i don't think he's autistic and we'll see why in a little bit uh but he seems like he in this first issue like he is kind of disembodied from his own emotions but of course he just saw his parents killed and his yeah. whole life has been changed and he's in this hospital and he's been attacked so i think it's like a normal kind of um stress reaction mm-hmm to feel kind of estranged from your own emotions and kind of feel like you're seeing them from a from a third dimension that's true actually you know you actually answered the question i had earlier is like why is he not feeling it's like oftentimes as a child in order to not blow up and cry you actually kind of block all those feelings out actually as an adult too you know so you try to and it's like that's why it's so important to feel those feelings and like kind of express them to someone yeah yeah because if you don't you're going to be repressed in some way and in some ways him shooting the bolts out of his hands kind of they're the beginning of his journey to his freedom 
it's almost it kind of just as I was looking at it, it kind of feels looks like stigmatas too. Like you know how like people have like a religious experience. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Yeah, and well, the hero looks at James Michael with that really beautifully drawn smile on his face. They lock eyes for a moment, and then the hero walks away. Not a reply, not a word, not even a wink or a nod. Mm. So he, this chaos is left behind. James Michael is confused. The rawness, like you said, the rawness of the nerves is new to me. I'm not accustomed to pain. It interests me. Mm -hmm. What kind of 12-year-old has never experienced pain? And about you, like when I was in elementary school age, I would tear up my knee and yeah. cut myself playing around with my friends all the time, all the time. James Michael has never felt pain before. Mm. Oh, there's just so much here. Yeah. Any other thoughts on, on this issue? No, I'm, I'm excited to read the next issue. Overall, what, what was your impression? Did it intrigue you? Yeah, it did. I mean, I think the biggest, uh, we've talked about the things that really stood out, like the mom kind of made me really uncomfortable. It was an uncomfortable comic that I really enjoyed reading and analyzing and looking at. It's going to get more uncomfortable. I wonder what the Hulk's going to do next week. Oh, the Hulk and Electro both are, oh, love that issue. And the mm -hmm. second issue with Electro is even better. Oh, cool. And he moves in with Amber and Ruth. Oh, yeah. Oh, there, it, it, yeah. Uh, I think I think you're going to appreciate this. I want to call out uh, Steve Gerber wrote this with the uh, he's co-credited with Mary Screens or Mary Screenas. I'm not sure how you say her name. Uh, they actually co-wrote a lot of Gerber's comics over the years. She wrote co-wrote quite a few issues of Man Thing with him as well. Should kind of his, I, I don't know what their relationship was, and I shouldn't presume to guess, but I know they were close. And so um, I don't want to just praise Gerber. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, um, I, I, I've seen that too. I saw that she's also a co-creator. I could, I'd love to see a movie um, of this, but let's finish the story first. <laughs> Thanks for doing this, Samir. Thanks, Jason. Really I, fun. I love talking this comic, obviously. Yeah, yeah, it's great. All right, talk. we'll talk about Omega number two next week. Welcome to Hell's Kitchen. All right, awesome. All right, see you in a week. Oh, thank you.